Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you tonight uh, praying your, your grace and kindness on us again. Father, would you speak to us tonight? We trust your grace is sufficient this Sunday evening. And we pray that, pray, Father, that whether it's our first ever time hearing these particular words from the Bible or whether they're old and familiar to us, you'd have grace for us in our lives at the moment. In Jesus' name, amen. have these letters. Uh, when I was getting to know my wife before we got engaged, she was living in Paris for two years, and she'd send me letters like this. I'd brought a couple. Don't worry, I'm not going to read them to you. That would be a bit gushy. But um, she sent me letters like this, and I have a box at home of uh, letters from Paris. And uh, it's, they're very special to me because they represent our relationship and the back and forth and the highs and the lows. I was in London. She was in Paris. Turned out well in the end. Um, I tell you that not for sympathy but because I want to read and enjoy this passage from a letter with you which is at the end of a correspondence which had its ups and downs and its highs and its lows and it comes at the end of the whole process sort of like a climax to the whole series of Corinthians in the Bible And we know it's called 2 Corinthians, our book, but we understand that there are four letters that Paul actually wrote to the Corinthian church because in the two surviving ones, the other two are mentioned. It just feels like, it seems like they didn't survive all the way into the canon. So four books of Corinthians, four letters from the apostle who cared and poured out his heart to this church and longed for them and prayed for them. And presumably they communicated back. And we know from the content of the letters that there were great joys and sorrows and struggles along the way as well. I think this bit is special, 2 Corinthians 12, and has really captured my imagination. I hope it might yours as well, because it's the, the climax of the whole process. You know? How is the great apostle going to tie off everything that's happened in their relationship? As he gets towards the summary where he wraps everything up, and this is just before that, what's he going to say? And what we discover is it's, it gets emotional, it gets autobiographical, he, he delves into things which I think he hadn't initially planned to tell them. And then he says, look, given how far we've come together, given the way things are with you, let me, let me tell you about this vision that I had. So it's a, it's a Corinthian climax in that respect. And he's on the theme of boasting. And if, if we tracked all the way through the Corinthian letters, we would have spotted that right from the beginning. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's talks in the early chapters about super apostles. It feels like there was this celebrity culture in Corinth, in the Greek world, where everyone, everyone in the limelight needed to be terribly impressive, a celebrity, in order to get by. And Paul's trying to just burst that bubble. If we tracked it through to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we would have seen that he was on the theme of boasting again then. What, what do you boast about, Corinthians? If we'd read chapter 11, we would have seen that he was indulging in a little bit of worldly boasting himself. Just let me tell you my pedigree, a Hebrew, the tribe of Benjamin, or, you know, trained in such and such a way. But in the bit I want to look at, look at with you, he's flipped it round and he says, let me tell you what I boast about in a Christian way. I don't want any of that Greco-Roman boasting. I want a Christian boasting. Let me tell you about the stuff I'm embarrassed about. 
stuff that I'd rather sweep under the carpet and rather no one knew about. And yet I'm going to tell you about it because I find that it's in those moments that Christ is really impressive. So that's the sort of boasting he's getting around to. If I may, in in the moments we've got together, I want to tell you about the vision that he outlines here, about the thorn that tempers it, and then about the motto that God gives him to wrap everything together. So first of all, the, the vision that Paul has is, well, it's staggering. Verse 1, I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And he tells us this stuff in verses 1 to 6, which I had to read a few times before I grabbed hold of it. I know a man in Christ, verse 2, who 14 years ago went up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. See what he's doing? He's, he's saying, look, you, want, you know what? Let me tell you about a vision God gave me. And yet he does it in this funny third-person way. I, I've got a friend who had a vision. Let me tell you about that. And yet, as you go on reading, I think it becomes evident that he's talking about himself. So verse 5, I'll boast about a man like that, but I'll not boast about myself ex- except about my weaknesses. It's still a bit enigmatic, isn't it? Are you, are you actually talking about yourself, Paul? Verse 6, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain. So you, you pick up as he goes on, don't you? This, this is him. He's, he's, he's toying with this category of boasting, but it is him who had the vision. And he talks about being caught up to the third heaven. Wouldn't it be nice to know what that is? I mean, what's the second heaven for that matter? <laughs> he, he compares it to paradise. I don't think there's enough data for, here for us to say explicitly, but it seems he was sort of caught up maybe to the physical presence of Jesus. It seems that in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he talks about believers who are still alive and they get snatched up to heaven, that's, that's a similar, that's the same verb used then. So that's as far as we can say about that. But it was this inexpressible vision that we're not even supposed to understand. You know, I rather think this is somewhat unapostolic. I think of Paul as the the man in the Bible who spells out the doctrine from A to Z, you know, and for him to suddenly start revealing the revelation that God gave to him, I, I find that rather surprising. And yet, if you go through the New Testament and you chart all the visions that do occur, it is rather surprising the amount that there are. The New Testament opens with a vision with Zechariah in the temple, seeing a a vision of what was to come and what his son was going to be. It goes on as the church is born into Stephen, and as he dies, he sees a a vision of Jesus in heaven. We get Peter, who um, sees as, as the church expands into the Gentiles, he gets that vision, doesn't he, of the sheep being let down from heaven. And that's why we don't have to keep kosher, you and I, these days. Later on in Acts... He uh, has a vision which sets him free from jail while all the Christians are praying. John, of course, writes Revelation on the island of Patmos, and he gets this vision which has kept countless Christians going down the centuries. Ananias was a man in Damascus who was given a vision to go and talk to a guy called Saul. 
It was very intimidating at the time. And so then we get round to Saul's visions. Saul was given that vision on the road to Damascus, which was so incredible it blinded him. Later on, he tells us when his name is Paul, he was given a vision that, that showed him what his gospel was going to be. He alludes to that in Galatians. And then here, it seems, he's talking about another vision where God caught him up to the third heaven. You know, I find all that rather encouraging, given what I was saying to Brad, the way I came to faith was just totally unexpected. Uh, I had a definite feeling of God calling me down that aisle and forcing me onto my knees to pray before him. It, it, um, it was a unique thing that I've sometimes been tempted to be embarrassed about, but reading this, I think it just makes me very grateful for that experience in my life. Anyway, that's just a personal note. I, what I find interesting about Paul's methodology here is his vision is very much not for profit. You know, it's taken him this long in the Corinthian correspondence and even get around to mentioning this. If I was a super apostle, I would have front-loaded this right at the start. Let me tell you my, my visionary credentials. What's more, the way he introduces it and then uh, concludes it makes me think, we're not going to hear any more about this. I'm not going to go into the details of what that vision was and the inexpressible things that I heard. Rather, I'm just mentioning it since you've brought me to this point. It's a not-for-profit sort of vision. Rather, what, what you realize, I think, as even in this section as he goes on talk, is that the bread and butter of his everyday experience as a Christian, as a leader, as an apostle, was sacrifice. I may have heard inexpressible things in the third heaven, but what I get on with day to day is sacrificial living for Jesus. So that was Paul's vision. We really get down to the sacrifice when we consider his thorn. And this is really verses 7 and 8. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. A thorn is a very small thing, isn't it? This is just the tiniest stem that I could find. And um, I bet you can't even see it, can you? There's a thorn just here. It's the tiniest thing, but you know the discomfort that little tiny thing can cause, don't you? You'd notice if that was sticking into you at any point of your body. It's rather like that for Paul, this, this metaphorical thorn he's talking about. This thing has caused me so much discomfort. Three times I just set about pleading with the Lord, you've got to take this away from me. And yet he decided not to. I don't think we should be alarmed by the way he describes it as a messenger of Satan. We know from elsewhere in Paul's writings he was occasionally willing to talk about Satan, just blocking him from doing certain things. 1 Thessalonians 1.18, he's willing to say, Satan stopped me from going on a, to a certain destination. So it seems like vocabulary Paul was willing to talk about. But the main thing he's saying is, God gave me this. It was, it was given to me. I asked him to take it away. He said, no. I got this thorn. People love to speculate about what this thing might have been. Okay, what, what is this metaphorical thorn he's talking about? And um, I don't think there's enough data here to say. I've got a hunch. 
Um, some people think it might have been a spiritual, um, uh, a physical thorn. You know, perhaps it was poor eyesight. There's one or two allusions to that in Paul's letters. Perhaps it was just anything physical that hindered him in his everyday life. Was he diabetic? Has it got to be a thorn in the flesh? It's just going to stop you from leading the life you might have otherwise. Something like that. I don't think it was that. I think rather it would have been a sort of ministry hindrance. And I think that because of verse 10. The way he describes this experience, he says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, difficulties. So you see that list, weaknesses, insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. They're by and large things that are... Now, if I said Paul, Paul had invited them on himself, it would have been the wrong word. But, you know, they come with the vocation. They're in the job description of being an impostle. Hardships, persecutions, insults, difficulties, these things which, when, when Paul agreed to be the instrument in God's hands for the Gentile church, these, these were part of the job. I think that's compounded by the way he describes it in verse 10 as things for Christ's sake. You know, these are things that I do just because I've got to do them for Jesus. I'm just compelled to do them. It's part of my vocation. So that's my hunch. He's, he, the thorn he's talking about here is not necessarily like a, a birth defect, a physical defect. He's talking about a ministry weakness, which he has gladly now that he's pleaded with God and he realizes it's not going away. That's the thorn. And what this is all building up to, the, the, the grandeur of the vision, the, the misery of the thorn is leading up to a, this amazing resolution in verse 9, which is the motto God gives him. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It seems that God gave him this motto to sort of balance out the ecstasy of the vision and the misery of the thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. Or if you wanted to squash that down into three words, it would be this, I think. God is... You know what God told me when I was wrestling with this? He said, God is enough. God, in his grace, in his deity, in everything he is, God's grace is sufficient. It's, it's enough for me with this thorn in the ministry I'm in. Enough for what, one of you might be asking. Well, I think it's enough for my weakened ministry to be powerful. I've been reading this book recently. It's called Enough. It's by a woman called Helen Rosevere. I don't know if you've heard of her. She was a, a medical missionary, a Christian woman, in the 1950s and 1960s to the Congo. And she, she talks very movingly about the sorts of sacrifices entailed in deciding as a single woman to just give up everything, move from England, go to the Congo, and um, serve Jesus there. And the late 50s and the early 60s were the time of African independence. So it was pretty tumultuous. And she talks about uh, when the Civil War broke out. Let me just read you a little bit, if I may. Then the Civil War broke over us. And I was captured by rebel soldiers. Five months were to follow with wickedness and cruelty all around us. Sleepless nights. Constantly being watched. 
threatened with unspeakable atrocities, seeing others suffer. Then the night when I myself was taken by these wicked men and I suffered at their hands, the euphemism that we all use to speak of their misuse of wisdom. In my heart, I cried out to God for his protection. And God, in his loving mercy, spoke peace into my heart. I almost felt his loving arms around me. He said to me, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want No, I don't want it, I said back. And yet I desperately wanted God's comfort. And he said to me, in effect, can you thank me for trusting you with this, even if I never tell you why? I want to say to you tonight, from the Apostle Paul's correspondence with this church, God is trusting you with a certain ministry. I don't, I don't know you well enough to know what that ministry might be in your life, in this church, in your home or your workplace or your family, but he's trusting you with a ministry. And uh, do you want it? Because God is enough. I mean, he's promising, I am enough for this ministry. My grace is sufficient for you, even in the present hardships you're enduring. I don't know what you are enduring at the moment. I really hope it's not as bad as the, the bit I just read. But God is sufficient even in that. Let me just clarify how before we talk about some practicalities. How is, how is God enough in all of this? Well, I think in, in three little ways. He's, he's enough to save. I hope you know that. I don't know whether this is your first ever time at church, but I hope you know God is enough to save. Even in all eternity, in 10,000 years' time in heaven, God's grace will still be enough to keep you there. It won't run out. The tank won't be low. In particular, Jesus in his death, dying for our sins, in his resurrection, so that we can have new life. That, that stuff's not going to just ebb and flow, not going to be depleted. God's grace is sufficient to save. It's also, secondly, brought me comfort to realize that, that God's grace is enough to keep me. I'm just launching out on a ministerial career and wondering, how's this going to go? I mean, I don't even know what the first 12 months are holding, let alone when I'm approaching retirement and I'm hoping I'm still clinging to Jesus. But God's grace is enough to keep me my entire life. And it's enough for you. And thirdly, um, God's grace is enough to empower you in your daily life. We had our second child last year. Uh, I mean, that was, that was a hard time of life for me. I was, I was tired. We were having sleepless nights. I was trying to do college work and a few other responsibilities as well. And you know the, the thing that went through my head most often? It was the words from, the, from a Christian song which go, grace sufficient, grace for me. Grace for all who would believe. And uh, I, it used to pop into my head at 2 a.m. when I was holding a baby who was crying. And grace sufficient, grace for me. That would go around in my head. I guess God gave me that at the right time when I needed it. It, I, it was as if I was saying to God, you know, do you know, God, you've given me this crybaby. <laughs> and I understand that I'm supposed to not lose my temper in the middle of the night. And I'm supposed to love it and care for it. And this is going to go on for a, many years now. So I just need grace to get me through the night. And... I found that those words kept coming back to me. Grace sufficient, grace for me. 
in your daily life at the moment. God is enough. You know, that grace is sufficient for your Christian ministry. Whatever God is calling you to do as a human being following Jesus today, tonight, this week, this month, God is enough. So I don't know what it might mean for you, but here's a few examples. In your, in your weakened ministry, weakened as it may be by any thorn that may exist, in your church ministry perhaps, I don't know whether you're an elder or you're involved in teaching children here, whether you've got a ministry of hospitality or prayer or something else, whatever that is and whatever it feels weakened by, whatever brings you to the moment where you think, Do you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm out of energy here. God is promising that there is, there is grace there if you ask me for it. Perhaps it's in, in financial terms. If you've tried to be generous and, and give money away, I mean, 2 Corinthians has set a precedent for that. I want you to enjoy giving just as he who was rich became poor for you. If, if it's in giving, where you feel at the end of your tether and saying, do you know what, Lord, I, I feel like I've given away too much. You're going to have to give me some grace here. God is promising that he is enough. It, it, it should be possible to say, I have enough in God after all I've given. Perhaps it's in saying no to people. You know, this is something I've been trying to learn at college in advance of um, uh, full-time church ministry, how to say no to people when they ask me to do worthy things. And I've discovered in this text that if someone asks me to do something very worthy and I come to the conclusion that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't help you. My, the demands on my resources are already too much. It is possible to pray, please, Lord, would your grace be sufficient for them? I can't help them, but I trust that you are enough for them with the things that they need to get done. Or finally, perhaps, uh, if you're married... And whatever you're going through in your marriage at the moment, you need to know that God's grace is sufficient in that relationship. I wonder if it might be possible for you, the next time you pray with your spouse, even if that's difficult, to, to voice, God, you are enough. I wonder if you can say that in a prayer with your spouse. and Begin to get in the habit of trusting God's sufficient grace that way. Look, I... I wonder if uh, Paul could have revisited the Corinthian church after writing all these letters, after all the correspondence and the postage which has been paid and the letters which have arrived at their destination and they've been read and digested. After all that and the dust had settled, if he could have visited the Corinthian church right at the end of his life and his ministry, I wonder if he would have just loved to have noticed that these guys are hard-pressed but not crushed and uh, I would love it if, if the Apostle Paul somehow could visit this church, if he could meet you and he could say of all of us that these guys are hard pressed the demands of their life are strong but they are not crushed because they know that God is enough let's pray